0: Gracious God, praise you because you are Lord over all. You tower in your majesty. You are wise beyond our understanding. Your ways are inscrutable, but your goodness is deeper than the oceans. You are Lord above all, and yet you have come. You have condescended by your spirit to live in the heart's of of everyone who comes to be a child of God by faith, born again by your spirit, and we praise you for it. Would you speak today to your people? Would you call today to those not yet your people? Would you reveal yourself today so that all people might give you praise? Lord, this is what we ask for our good, for your glory, in Christ's name, amen. What do you do when you're spiritually dull? Um, one of my favorite, favorite, favoritist books, it's pretty favorite, It's John Piper's Desiring God. I, I read it as an early 20-something guy, not knowing at that time it was fairly popular. I didn't get it, you know, right out of the gates. Uh, but it has become a classic, most would say, in uh, Christianity in America in the late 20th century, it marked my life. He, he wrote a follow-up book a number of years later, though, and that's my point in mentioning the first, and its title was When I Don't Desire God. Uh, it's cool if you come out with Desiring God, but right, you can imagine I were probably some conversations and some feedback along the way of a lot of people who said, yeah, it's great when you desire God. Uh, a lot more than just that title reveals. In any case, When I Don't Desire God, there's a sense in which that's passage today Psalm 103 because my guess is you've been there and if you don't think you ever have been you will be I've been there and I I'm sure in spite of me I will be again in spite of what I would want I will be because of me I will be again sorry I want to put the credit where it's due when you're spiritually dull when your soul feels dry when the Lord seems far When sin has deceived you and lied to you and left you empty, when the cares of this life have choked out the refreshment from the steady stream ever present to you of God's grace, he always being with you, and yet you can't drink from it. Psalm 103, the psalmist speaks first to himself. I think that's a fitting place for us to begin To take ourselves by the spiritual throat, if you will. To grab ourselves by the lapels and focus our attention. The psalmist speaks first to himself and then immediately to the Lord. Let's read our passage then this morning. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind is passed over, it is no more. and its place, acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant, remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The psalmist urges his own focus, doesn't he? Come on, soul, let's praise God. I think the psalm is probably written after he's experienced all of this. But its words need to be spoken to us and are most needful in the time before we walk the journey. Because it's the words the psalmist knows, the reminders, the taking of his attention and focusing it on the Lord that begins to walk him down the steps. Come on, dry, weary, heavy laden, burdened soul, and let's go together and praise our great God. What do you do then when you're spiritually dull? First, first you let your soul be moved to God's praise. Let your soul be moved to God's praise. I know I've already said that, but I want you to see that in the passage, that that's exactly what I think the Spirit of God is doing in this passage for us. It's what the Lord would have us do. It's what the psalmist exhorts of his own soul. And underneath that, as he calls his soul to praise We find the provisions of God, the perfect, exact provisions of God, and they are many. I want you to notice the main point of the psalm. You've already got it, but now see it. Look at the command. Start at verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul. Start at verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul. And oh goody, look at the last phrase of the last verse of the psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul. I wonder what the psalm is going to be about today. Come on, soul. Let's praise God what it's about the psalmist is rousing himself to rejoice in the lord that phrase sound familiar those of you who are here for the series in philippians to rejoice in the lord was a keynote of paul's life and it made him the man that he was he wrote one of the most joyful letters one of the most ringing endorsements of the goodness and faithfulness of god from prison how how Because somehow he figured out how to rejoice in the Lord in all things. Somehow he figured out how to say, come on, soul, let's praise God. It ends here in verse 2 with a word um, that I don't love and that after I studied it really hard, I still can't come up with one that I love. But I understand why they have a hard time coming up with a good one. Verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. The word benefits. It sounds so mundane. Don't forget the benefits of God. I mean, it's like, we're way up here. Woo, awesome, high stuff. And then it's like, and God does things for you. You're like, it feels so not quite majestic enough. I think the problem is not with the word, not in the Hebrew. The problem is that the Hebrew word doesn't have a perfect come over into English. Let me give you just a couple of thoughts about it. and It'll help you appreciate it because this word should be seen as big. Because it's, in a sense, the the table of contents for where he's going to go. How do I grab my soul and say, let's go praise? Answer, you go and you walk through the catalog of his benefits. The word here, uh, literally translated, could be dealings. And the vast majority of the time that we see it in the Old Testament, it is like super negative. It most often comes in the context of, of recompense, of Pay, payback. You can put down, if you want to go check it out, uh, Isaiah 59, 18. The Lord will recompense his people for their dealings with his wrath. You get the picture what their dealings were. And in the broader context, there's something about that that he is going to exactly make right. Recompense and payback, those kinds of phrases appear often. In a couple of places, though, the word, the word itself is not negative. It's mostly used in negative context in Scripture. but Proverbs 12:14 is a positive one. In that context there, it's the good works of a man returning to him. It's, it's his dealings coming back to recompense him or God through his dealings, dealings, promising to recompense him for the dealings that he has done. And obviously those are good. You can read Proverbs 12:14 and you'll see it's an exceedingly positive. The point is this, the word benefits, uh, it it just means deeds or doings or dealings, but it always comes in some context, either positive or negative, of of something that is made right, that is full, that is satisfied, that is fitting. You get it? And I want you to catch that nuance, because it's helpful for me, because I think that's part of what the psalmist is going to meditate us on. That the Lord's dealings are always full. They're perfect. They're fitting. They're just right. What kind of dealings of God in this case? Provisions. So I've tried to paraphrase for you. This opening section, think the Lord is telling us that his full provisions are many. And by meditating on those full provisions, we can take hold of our soul and not be a follower of our emotions, not be a follower of our circumstances, not just blindly go down the way subconsciously to wherever our our dull spirit might lead us, but rather grab it and turn it and lead ourselves. Forget none of his dealings, his benefits. It says in verse 2, like the Deuteronomy generation, by the way, which every good Israelite reading Psalm 103 would know well, Deuteronomy 8, he exhorted them, he, he warned them. Let me read you these words because they rang in the ears of the people of God for generations. Deuteronomy eight eleven: beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. They're about to go into the promised land. And he says, let me tell you, let me tell you, there are people in there, and they're big, and they hate you, and they want to kill you. There are practices that they have that will lead you to idolatry, and they're going to be tempting, and they seem smart, and you'll be so excited because they're the newest and the latest, and all the cool people in Canaan are doing it. But neither of those is your big problem. Your biggest problem is forgetfulness. Guess what will ultimately lead them astray? We know because later Scripture says they forgot Verse 12 of Deuteronomy 8. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you have built houses and you've lived in them. When your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and your gold multiply, all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord, your God, who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness and on and on it goes. Don't forget. Moses pleads with them just before he will go and die on the mountain with the Lord. He pleads. And so I wonder we're going to see Moses and that generation in just a verse or two. If that's not at the front of mind here for the psalmist writing, like the Deuteronomy generation, forget none of all of his dealings because he provided and his provision was full. It was fit. It was just what you needed. Uh, And that's important for us to know as well. But, but I don't have everything I want today. In fact, there's a couple of things in my life that are really killing me, and I don't even think that they're what God wants. Sure, that may, in fact, be a right estimate. But his provision is fitting. It is full. It is exact. It is right. Those are his dealings for whatever your situation and mind for his children Let your soul be moved to God's praise. The end of verse 2 tells us don't forget. So what we need to do to not forget first is we need to dwell. What do we dwell on? First, we dwell on him. Dwell on him. Look what it says here in verses 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. There's the first point of focus, the person of God. Throughout the psalm, you'll see the person and the work of God. By the way, that's a a broad stroke uh, banner to hang good theology on throughout the course of scripture, wherever you're reading, you will often find this w- wondrous two-sided coin of the person of Christ and the work of Christ, or the person of Yahweh and the work of Yahweh. It begins with his person, bless his holy name, Let your mind dwell on that. What he means, two sides of that coin, his regal power. Name has to do with his power, and it's a name that is holy. And for the sake of time, I won't rehearse the many scriptures in the Old Testament that say things like, The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run into it, and they are safe. That, that, that is his power, and it's a, it's a regal power. It's a holy power. The same thing is said of, of Jesus Christ. The disciples in Acts chapter 4, they saw the man who had been crippled from birth. He had never walked. He was over 40 years old, and he was there begging and the disciples said, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I'll give you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, rise and walk. That's a power. That's how the man was healed. Later Peter will preach and he will say, and that's how you are saved. The name, there's a regal name. Dwell on his power, dwell on his name. Whatever it is that has left you dull, whatever is choking out that, 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 that refreshment in your life, or maybe it's just you don't even know. You can focus on his name and his power. Dwell on his regal power and also dwell on his powerful holiness. The other side of the same coin. Because we're to forget, I'm sorry, we're to bless his holy name. So as you focus on him, remember, in his majesty who he is. Remember him seated on the throne. Remember that he rules, and one day every knee will bow to him. His powerful holiness is intrinsic to him. It's not something he has to acquire. It's not something he has to strive after. He is holy. I just woke up this morning. I'm completely holy, and I can't help it. I hope that's not a blasphemous description, but we can muse over what it must be like to be God in his glorious Holiness, dwell on him. May your soul be moved to God's praise as you focus on him. And then rest in his works. That's where he goes from here. The second phrase of verse 2 explains verses 3 through 5. There are six or eight or so lines. And they will all do this. Forget none of his benefits. I just want you to scan down starting in verse 3. Because these are his works and we're to rest in them. What are they? Well, here's what he says. He pardons, verse 3. He heals, verse 3. He redeems, verse 4. He crowns, he satisfies, he renews. I think that's a pretty good list for your next prayer time and mine. Yeah, man, if you're just like, I'm so dull, I don't even know how to pray. Great. Here's your table of contents for your prayer time. Go rest in his works. He pardons. I'll give you an example. I won't do this with all of them, but maybe a couple. And you get it. But how do we meditate on these? He who pardons all your iniquities. When was the last time that you acknowledged sin before God and you felt his pardon? If you're dull, then that's a good place to meditate some thoughts. When was the last time you, having been obstinate, felt a conviction of God's spirit by his grace, and you paused and you said, you know what, Lord, <laughs> I just agree. I'm just going to stop. I agree that what I'm doing, what I'm thinking, whatever, what I'm not doing, that that's sin. I agree that that's sin. And at the same time, I agree. Colossians chapter two, that you, Lord Jesus, died for this. You knew I would do it. And it's part of that long list of, of offenses against me, of of transgressions of your law that's now been nailed to the cross. I agree that that's sin, and I agree that, Jesus, you died for it. When was the last time you just paused and you, you turned off your inner attorney and and you stopped mounting your defense against your conscience that's trying to convict you, against the Spirit of God, and you just... You just gave up your desperate defensiveness to try and prove to yourself, I'm really okay, I just know I'm okay, I know I'm so okay. So I I did this as I, this week, wrestled and thought and prayed. What came to mind as I paused over this uh, was uh, not too long ago, matter just a few days, what what came first to my mind was a, a time I was trying to justify myself that I was not judgmental. I'm not judgmental. That person is that way. That's just the truth. That's the way that it is. It's their fault. They're bad. I'm not judgmental. And in his grace, God convicted me. It's one of those things, right? It's like, a, it's like background noise running in your subconscious, but it, 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 it disturbs you. It causes distress. Your heart is disquieted, and you just know. And, and God, in his grace, stops you and just convicts you, and you're like, why, am I, why do I just feel like ick, Right? It's because, okay, the conviction of, the God and, of God and the conviction of my conscience are, are trying to point something out to me that I need to deal with. And I am just fighting it. And I am so good, right? I, the, the, the inner defense attorney is just turned on all the time. And I have to stop and realize what I'm doing in my conscience. No, I'm okay. I'm sure I'm okay. I'm totally okay. I'm not judgmental. And say, Lord, wow, turn that off. I agree, Lord, I'm judgmental. And what, why I remembered it, the first phrase that came to my mind, because I remember what I said to the Lord right away. Lord, I don't love like you love. I agree. I just don't. But I know the way you love, and I know the way you've loved me. I don't want to be a little more like you. I know you died for this. You've pardoned that iniquity at great cost to your son. And then he met me. He came with his help. He came with his grace. I know, my son. I know. (laughs) I've been trying to let you know. And he gave me his mind. And I continued to pray and I began to love. That's a miracle. And I began to be renewed. Rest in his works, his dealings. When was the last time you were conscious of his pardon for your iniquities? That's one way to move a dull soul to praise. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh with confidence i now draw nigh and father abba father cry uh, the great hymn arise my soul arise is a repetition of this exact idea his pardoning voice i hear and so i moved to praise he pardons he, he heals he heals all your iniquities i'm sorry your diseases That may be a physical healing you may recall. There are times the Lord has brought me after a season of wrestling on feverish bed and crying out to him and feeling like there is no light at the end to look back with health and say, Lord, let me not forget that it's you and your mercy who healed I know that the wages of sin is death. I know that disease and curse came upon the world because of Adam sin, and I'm party to it, and I deserve it. And yet you healed me this time. What if it's a disease that takes our life? Then it's just the path to final healing. Because if you know Christ, there will be that day of no more disease. How is he healed and that's just physically. How about healing from spiritual disease of sin? When you've come out of a mindset that's clouded. Lord, you've healed me. That was like a sickness. We talked in Psalm 107 last week about the infection of sin. I think the same thoughts could be here. He crowns. Um, you'll, you'll know why I ended up with this uh, psalm. How did you get to Psalm 107 and Psalm 103, right? What's the key word that we talked about last week that jumped out at you? And you know it in the Hebrew probably steadfast love or loving kindness in your verse wanted to do a couple more chesed psalms this summer he crowns you with loving kindness and compassion offerings oh, soak on this verse for a bit understand the two sides of god's love that the psalmist is saying, you crown me, you surround me, you cover me with your love. What kind of love? Loving kindness and compassion. You know what's beautiful about that? Chesed is God's loyal love. It's his covenant love, right? We've talked about that before, but here in contrast, it's his love of resolve. Deuteronomy 7, again, the Lord set his love on Israel. On the one hand, God's love is something that he wills to do for you because he promised to do it in covenant. I gave you through the blood of my son my promise, and I can't not do it. I resolve to love you. And then the other side. It's not the love of resolve. It's the love of emotion. It's compassion. It's it's what the New Testament in the Greek uh, often translates this kind of word as splanknoi. It's your innards. It's your spleen, you're like, ooh, I don't know that I don't want that kind of love. No, it was it was we, we we associate emotions with the heart, right? But but that's not per se a a super cultural thing, a supra cultural thing. Every culture has its way of talking about things. It was innards, it was guts. You would feel it in your guts. You're like, okay, yeah, I can get that. The point is here, his compassions descriptive of the Lord being moved by by emotion. Why? Because he so deeply cares for his children. You can just jot this down. One other place where the same word is used, by the way, just to prove the point. 1 Corinthians 3, you remember when Solomon was king, he asked for wisdom. You remember the two ladies with one baby came to him, and they gave him a dilemma. Hey, we both had infants uh, at night. Uh, The one says, she rolled over and killed her infant in its sleep. But then she stole my infant and swapped. And this morning I woke up and I had a dead infant. But this is not my baby. That's my baby. And the other one tells the same story. No, but she did it. And so Solomon says, all right, you both want the baby? Let's cut it in half. You can each have half. Sounds fair. And it says that the true mother was deeply moved in spirit. Same word. I don't know how much you think God might love you. One picture is that mama who said, I'm so deeply moved for the life of my child. Let her have the child. Don't kill the baby. You have the child. Same word here for the Lord's compassions. He crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Those two words, in fact, this is why you soak here, because by itself, it, it, it gets you the gold star for everything that's in this section In this in this psalm, because everything else is really going to flow out of that. You're going to see loving kindness repeated about four times and compassions repeated about three or four times. The wonders of God's covenant love we talked about last week in Psalm 107, because God's covenant love, it returns the child of God. It releases the child of God. It pursues the child of God and it settles the child of God in the midst of storms. And so here, the psalmist is saying, you have crowned me with this two-sided, magnanimous love. He is loyal to you and me in spite of you and me because he has resolved the love. And at the same time, he is jealous over you and me and has emotion because he cares. Well, you get the idea. He satisfies. When was the last time you came to the realization that God satisfies your soul more than anything else? Maybe something you've been running after. And you're like, wow, maybe not until that thing came up empty. And you're like, that was a dumb pursuit. Should have been running after the Lord the whole time to fill my soul. He renews. You get it. Psalmist now takes us next after saying, let your soul be moved to God's praise. Next, he takes us to Yahweh's size and space. And he says, consider his towering heights and vast mercies. How do I renew myself and my soul to praise God? Consider his towering heights and vast mercies. Here we have in verse 6 more statements about what God does. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. Okay, I get that. So we've got his person and his works, so we're talking more about his works. Okay, psalmist, I see where you're going. But then verse 7 comes a little bit, it feels like, out of the blue. God made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. Until I step back and I go, oh no, that actually makes perfect sense. Because he who does vindications, he does righteousnesses, and he does judgments for the oppressed. And what comes right after that? Oh yeah, it's kind of like Moses, uh, you know, and the Exodus. Because they were in slavery, oh, oppressed. And he made himself known to Moses and he made his acts known to the sons of Israel. Six verse six is general. He does this for his people because of his care. Verse seven is specific. Every Israelite would know the great act of deliverance under the old covenant was the exodus pointed forward to the great act of deliverance in the New Testament, which is Christ. And then keying on the same idea, his revelation God was good, is good, is always good, but he made himself known to Israel and to all the Egyptians in that Exodus. And then it goes back to who he is in verse 9. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. The psalmist hasn't left this thought. By the way, he hasn't even left the time period. He's quoting from Exodus 34. He's quoting from what God revealed about himself to Moses. You can read Exodus 34.6. It basically is Psalm 103.9. And it's got both of our words, compassion and chesed, compassionate and gracious. And this is his revelation of himself. These are his mighty works, who he is and what he does, and it's great. But then the psalmist says, Well, let's talk for a second about what he doesn't do. Verses 9 and 10, he's going to tell us, but there's four things that Yahweh doesn't do. Verse 9, he doesn't strive, he doesn't keep. Verse 10, he doesn't deal, and he doesn't reward. Those are just the verbs. He doesn't keep anger, he doesn't strive against us forever, he doesn't reward us according to our sins. And he doesn't deal with us as we deserve. Aren't you so glad for what your father doesn't do? (laughs) It's glorious, the things that he chooses to refrain from for his children. It's even more miraculous considering who he is. The one who has the holy name, the regal power we just dwelt on. Even more so, see the dilemma of God because it names the brokenness of his people by three words, encompassing every way that we fall short. Look at them there in verse 10. It mentions our sin and then our iniquities. And then down in verse 12, our transgressions, three different Hebrew words, each with a slightly different nuance, all making the same point. Our sins, are actual offenses, I actually do stuff that dishonor a God who's holy. And then there's my iniquity. That's just my intrinsic defect. That's just my infection. I am sinful, born in sin, David writes in Psalm 51. And then there are my transgressions my actual willful acts, my rebellion to go beyond what God has said. To transgress is to pass over. God put a line, and I say, yep. And I cross it. But. It all the more so demonstrates his chesed and his emotional love because he doesn't do these four things. Instead, Yahweh is made a way. Chesed, covenant love, is the answer. We think of the sacrifices and the priesthood and the laws given to the old covenant believer and we think, man, how heavy, how exacting, how judgmental, how legalistic. Oh, friends, that ain't, that ain't how the Israelite in faith received the law. They said, this was a good gift. Why? Because I have sins and iniquities and transgressions. How do I live in company with the holy God? I have given you a good way to come into my presence by this blood, by this sacrifice, by this ceremony performed in a true heart. I will receive you and sit down and have a meal with you. And so it is the same today. God's made a way. But now the sacrifices and the mediating priests and the altar, all of that now point to Christ. and He is the fulfillment of all of it. And he makes covenant with those who agree to come under his blood as we heard our brother Jaden share earlier this morning. Friend, if you are outside of Christ, then he can only deal with you according to your sins and your iniquities and your transgressions. He has no other choice because he is holy. He will destroy you forever. He is not a father. He is not a friend. He is a judge. He is holy. And we can't do... Full justice to the weight of his wrath and what it means to be outside of covenants because you don't have Christ. But oh, friend, he wants to bring you in. And if you are willing to lay down those defenses, lay down your inner attorney, and agree about your desperate need before a holy God to be made right with him, he has made a way. You could never accomplish it, so he did it. He sent his son to die on the cross. And he makes covenant, he makes agreement, and he commits himself. He resolves a love, and he begins as a father to feel a love over those who are hidden in Christ. And then he leads them as his children. Now, what does that covenant love look like? We've already described it a little bit, but the climax of this section, I think, is found in the next two verses because the psalmist gives us two pictures, a picture of size And a picture of space. Look at 11. As high. And then verse 12. As far. He is bringing us back to consider. Yahweh's towering heights. And his vast mercies. He's going to. Repeat. His chesed. How high. How towering is his covenant love. As high as the heavens are above the, the earth. So great is his loving kindness. How high, how big, how tall? Uh, I got to go to another passage that uses the word. You can underline the word in your Bible. It's okay. You can write in your Bible if you want. The word great. How great is his loving kindness. Genesis 7 uses the same word that's used there. Just listen to Genesis 7 with me for a second. Verses 18 through 20. Uh, Noah, ark, flood, ends. You got the context? the water prevailed i'm sorry this is the beginning it's not ending yet the water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water surface of the water the water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered the water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered what word did you hear repeated prevailed that's the word great in psalm 103:11 as high As the heavens are above the earth, this is how the loving kindness of God is great. This is how the loving kindness of God prevails, dominates, covers, controls, rules over the life of the child of God. That's what he says. The waters dominated the landscape in the day of Noah. They covered you know, meters above the highest mountain in that day so that all that there was was water. And so that is the picture of Chesed bathing your life, dunking you, baptizing you in his covenant love. So high and so far. You would think he'd come to verse 12 and he would say, and let me tell you how far his love is. No, he he flips it. It's this high and it's woo super far. No, he's going to say, no, let me tell you how far. You guys know the verse. He's done what? Separated. Separated you from your sin. How far is east from west? I don't know, but it's pretty far. It's a long way. The idea is that he has put it away so that it does not now need to affect your permanent relationship with your heavenly father. You, he is your father. You are his child. That is a spiritual fact of history. You can never undo it. You can impact your fellowship through disobedience, but not that father-child relationship, right? So high and so far. I think it was um, Corey Tenboom, Boom, uh, I think, who, quoting from another psalm and explaining it, said that the Lord has taken our sins. He's drowned them in the depths of the sea, and he's hung a no-fishing sign over them. That's how far he has separated them. Am I right? Is that Corey? Okay. I know some folks would know. A few of you do. Consider his towering heights and his vast mercies. That's what you do when you're spiritually dull. Third, keep covenant. Keep covenant in your forever father. Father. Now, I'm not going to do something this morning, but I will commend it to you if you want. Most of the focus of our time here this morning is going to be on the person of Yahweh and the works of Yahweh, because that's the most stirring, and I think it's the primary point. But there's a sub-theme flowing through. I'll leave the homework assignment to you. You want it? Here it is. Go through and find every place that the psalm describes the people for whom Yahweh does these things. One of them, which we're about to see, is it is those who keep covenant. Covenant. Now, that may overwhelm you because you go, I break covenant every day. Yeah, that's right. But that's why the theme of the psalm is chesed, right? And how important is it that chesed? And how, how possible is it that that might come up short when I fail? 13 to 18 will tell us. He's going to give a third comparison now. Heavens are high, east and west are far. Let me talk to you about another picture It's called a father, 13. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame, himself knows our frame, he's mindful that we're but dust. And then he contrasts man and God's loving kindness. Why? Because he just said God knows that we are dust, that we are frail, that we are weak. He knows that we will fail. As for man, 15, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes one day, but then the wind has passed over it, and it's no more, and its place knows it no longer. In verse 15, I was pounding my chest, thinking, I flourish, I do good, I'm man. And the Lord says, I will blow on you, and the place where you live won't even remember you ever existed. But, 17, the chesed of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep covenant and remember his precepts to do them. The third comparison is that he is like a good father. No human father can do but uh, a flailing example of pointing to fathers at their best will indeed point to the goodness of God, but we fail. But we are just a pointer. He's the real. He's the epitome. Father, the third scene, the third image in verse 13. And there it is, echoed down in 17, where we get children again. And so the whole section hangs together. And what is the keynote? It's that the Father knows. He knows his children, He knows that you were dust. He, he knows that I will be blown away in a moment. I don't need to explain that to him. And when I think that I'm all that, he still condescends because he knows. I want you to also see, want us to also revel in verse 13. He mentions Father who has compassion. But the word here used in 13 for compassion is one that most often in Scripture guess with what it is associated. Answer, motherhood. It's most often associated with motherhood, like 1 Kings 3 that I mentioned before. Just as a father, another way to read verse 13, just as a father has motherly compassion on his children. That's how you might read it. What a beautiful fullness of His love! If you have an earthly father who is unemotional and distant, or you feel has never understood you, or maybe circumstances have kept you far, or maybe you lost him too soon. Know that there is a Father who loves you with a motherly love, compassionate care, understanding you. And that's where the psalmist is going to go on. It's a knowing love that He has. Emotionally concerned for us. It's the mother's heart. You've never had this in your home. It only happens in my house. Um, Hey, honey, there's a problem because so-and-so is struggling with this. What? Let them get over it, I say. Let me go fix that. And she's like, well, okay, but can you understand that I think she's struggling with something. Yeah, no, they'll be fine. There is a knowing, care, and compassion to empathize And to be able to say, No, I get it. To you, it's nothing. To me, it's nothing. But for where he is at, where she is at, this seems like the world's falling apart. And God knows us like that and shares in concern for us like that. And then 14, he is condescending. I mean that in the most godly, most positive, most glorious way. Yahweh condescends, he is sympathetic. He knows our frame. He's mindful that we're dust. He fully understands. 15 and 16, we're forgotten. 17, chesed is everlasting. That's the point. What do we do when we're spiritually dull? We resolve to keep covenant again, but we do that in this section, grounding ourselves on the fact that he knows us better than anyone could know us. Like a good father, like a concerned mother. He knows you better than you know you. When have you found that to be infinitely comforting? Man, all the time, right? Lord, I try, I, I try and come to God and explain what's wrong with me. And that really helps me because m- my dumb, small, analytic brain works like that. So it helps me to explain myself to God so I can understand me. But then there's plenty of times, right, where it's like, God, I don't even know what's going on with me. I, but I kind of think you do. Thank you. Thank you that you get me. And I don't need to explain it. What do you do when you're spiritually dull? Finally. Finally, he closes, and will close with this. Know that one day all of his works will praise him. Know that one day all of his works will praise him. If you are so dull so far, so hurting, so swamped, so choked, that you can't get back to a stirred soul that rejoices in the goodness of the everlasting covenant love of God, then the psalmist is going to give you one more, all right? One last-ditch effort to stir your soul. And so he is going to scrape the heights of the Milky Way galaxy 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules overall. Just step back for a second then. If you can't go back and look and remember, when was the last time I knew the joy of pardon? When was the last time I knew the glory of redemption or of crowning or whatever? Or I just don't see any of it. Fine, turn your eyes on me because I'm on the throne and I'm sovereign. Uh, The word here at the second half of verse 19 could be kingliness Uh, but kingliness doesn't translate super cool into English. So uh, sovereignty is what the NAS translators. His sovereignty rules overall. See him seated on the throne. It's an Isaiah 6 kind of moment. He is established. He is firm. He is solid, and he rules. No matter how tossed you and I are today. Is that not enough? Well, then he's going to turn to the angels. Bless the Lord. You, his angels. The psalmist has the audacity to say, angels, you look to the Lord and give him praise. All his hosts, verse 20, you praise God. And finally, all you works of his, verse 22. What are all his works? Answer, um, everything he created. So what is there that is to praise God and will praise God? Um, Answer, everything. Everything. Or at least only everything created. That will praise God, including the angels, including the heavenly host in all of his dominion. And it speaks of the obedience of the angels, obeying his voice, his hosts who serve him and do his will. And then he comes back climactically. After that, if I see powerful, flaming, eternal beings, angels bowing before Yahweh then my soul, O Lord, can now bless you. What we have is universal kingly acclaim. One day all of his works will praise him. We all have days when we are dull and we don't know how to praise and we need help. And God is so kind, so tender to us to come to us and say, I have the help you need. I am faithful. Look to me, look to what I've done. And like a father, like a compassionate mother, let me woo you afresh. Let me stir you afresh. May you see the glories that are mine above all creation. And might you too come on, soul. Let's praise God. Stand with me. Let's close together in prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you for the heights of your love. The vastness of your mercy and the wonders of your fatherly care. We worship you today. Nothing is as good as you. Nothing will satisfy like you. Your people proclaim that and commend that today. May we go from here and this week be fueled by that as we serve the children, as we welcome the families, as we Find ourselves at a low ebb and needing of perseverance and strength to love well and look into the eyes of the little ones like you condescended to look into our eyes. Let us remember your fatherly care this week and use us in mighty ways. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that we don't have to be dull, but that we can come back and you know and you understand. Courage us and use us this week. All for your glory we ask in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen. God.